I'm gonna take my dress off because it's hot in here. I, I still love how you maintain that you think we could both record in that closet and once you strip naked and we haven't even officially started recording yet and you're almost naked. I think that if I moved the little table that I made out of the old like shitty Apple computer tower that nobody uses for anything but a table if I moved that out of the way and you sat at one end with your legs stretched out and I sat at the other end with my legs stretched out we can make this happen it's like fitting in a tub with another human being have you ever done that fitting in a what a tub you know you're in a tub I mean yeah we could it's just we're both gonna be like sweaty and naked afterwards and not like the fun type (laughs) it's for the podcast Megan (laughs) Jesus (laughs) God and you know what our parents were worried about our sexuality I have no idea why I know I can't think of why Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Hi, how are you guys? Today, we're going to actually blend science and art together to make this amazing, weird hybrid. You excited? Of our our little hybrid podcast, my little baby. Exactly. And now we're going to bring you scientists that do art things and artists that do scientist things. And it's all going to be okay. It's kind of like the Alice in Wonderland episode. Yes, actually, that kind of, sort of, in a way, influenced who I'm about to do. Kind of, sort of, not really. Mushrooms and caterpillars. And rabbits. And rabbits. And, you know, Victorian illustrators. You know, the little things. Yeah, yeah. So, last episode, uh, we kind of got a little heavy with a little bit of murder and some suicide and a drug overdose and... This episode, I really wanted to go warm and fuzzy and cute and adorable where everyone dies happy. Happy! Maybe not happy, but at least old. So I am proud to say that I made that happen. Had to kind of sort through a few people and be like, all right, you know, good, good, good. Oh, no, murder. All right, good, good, good. Oh, no, rape. All right, uh, all right, until I finally settled on someone. So here we are. So we're about to get warm and fuzzy. With Peter Rabbit. Wait. <laughs> Wait. Continue. With Peter Rabbit. I don't know who Did Peter you ever read is. those stories no. when you were a kid? Mm-hmm. No. Okay, thank God, because I didn't either. Now, whether or not they were read to me when I was really little, I don't remember. That's something. I'll have to bring it with mom. Uh, just recently at my workplace, it was, it was mentioned, and one of my coworkers was like, oh my God, I love them. And it was like... Oh, I didn't really realize there were, like, more books in that series. You could have just as easily done her. And I'll get to a point where, I mean, it'll be really obvious why. Maybe later, if you want to give us more of the science part of what she did with her mycology, that would be really interesting. Because I'm going to give us, like, a basic rundown on it, but I really kind of want to focus on her art and her impact. So I'll mention it, but uh, she's made some some contributions to conservation and mycology and art and children's illustration so yeah do you do you know that much about her at all zero things i've heard the name though like it sounds familiar 
Well, yeah, because she's the author of Peter Rabbit, right. and that right, brings right. in a shit ton of money every year. I just don't under. I never got that. I got like I got a lot of Dr. Seuss and Junie B. Jones when I was later, and there there were a bunch of like Spanish books, like kid books <laughs> that I had. Like they were in Spanish. That you read upside down in the middle of the night. Oh my god! You might as well just tell everybody that story. Let's 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 get through this because I'm sure people are like, "What the heck? What the heck did she just say?" Okay, you want to tell the story? <laughs> no, I? no, I don't think I do it justice. Okay, I mean, well, terrifying your older sibling. I look okay. All right. I mean, so, you still do that, and this was like decades ago. Fuck out of him. <laughs> I don't even know how old I was. I think just long story short, little Milena was an avid reader. She was practically rabid. Uh, there were at least five different new books in her life, probably more like seven every week. And this was baby Milena. So the minute she could start like actually reading, she was like, give me more. I need more. Um, so <laughs> I also didn't like to go to bed at night. I'm still very much like that. I'm a huge night owl. It takes a lot for me to get to bed before midnight, no matter what I do. And I, I wake up at 5.45 now, so I don't get a lot of sleep. So for me, as a kid, I would always, like, procrastinate. I want some water. Let's let's, let's watch this last thing. Hey, I want to play a game with my older brother. Um, just stuff like that. And my parents knew my tricks. My brother knew my tricks. My brother's nine years older than me. So he, he very much helped raise me. And there was one night in particular, I guess I just was not ready to go to bed. <laughs> like at all um so I would like I like threw a fit I was like I need water please don't send me in and like Milena it's time to go to bed I'm like all right fine whatever so I I I go to bed right and apparently sometime in the night my brother was walking down the halls and he just noticed that like some some noise is coming from my room he like opens the door slightly he's like There she goes again. I got to put her back in bed. Like, I'm really, I have to go to bed. This is really annoying. He walks in on me sitting in the chair next to my bed with a Dr. Seuss book. I don't know which Dr. Seuss book. All I know is it was a Dr. Seuss book. It was in my hands in the pitch black darkness, no light on. (laughs) And, And my book was upside down. I just imagine a rocking chair. So you're slowly rocking back and forth with a terrible creaking sound. Uh, so what had happened, guys, <laughs> was I, um, I slept red. I was reading to myself. I, little Milena had memorized that book so well that in her sleep... She could read it out loud to herself in the pitch darkness. So my brother really liked horror movies. Like, he wasn't supposed to watch them, but he did anyway because the babysitters used to, like, we had really bad babysitters. Or he had really bad babysitters. He was my babysitter. But his would, like, I think they showed him Chucky once when he was, like, three or something. So he was always, like, yeah. So that, that explains a lot about my brother, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so he, like, immediately just assumed that I was possessed. And he was like, um, Milena, 
it's it's time to go to bed. And my spooky ass motherfucking self, like, looked up from the upside down book, stared at him, but like not at him, like through him. Like I was looking through him. And apparently the only thing I said was, but I want to read. Yeah. As you go, creak, 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 and I got in a rocking chair. That was approximately <laughs> about the time where my brother lost his shit, ran to my parents, and was like, she's possessed. There's a demon. <laughs> I mean, he still says that about you. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I know he does. He's like, I don't know what happened to her. She's clearly if possessed. We just... Just taking care of it that one time when she was like three, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> we wouldn't be here. She wouldn't be doing these things. Um, so my mama had to like come in and like she had to calm him down and go, no, honey, she's not possessed. She's just sleepwalking. Your dad does it too. <laughs> <gasps> well, that explains a lot. <laughs> he, he mostly That's what side of the family the demon is on. <laughs> <laughs> she like you know took the book from me very nicely and like gently put me into bed tucked me in and like meanwhile like my brother is just like don't touch your mom she's gonna kill you <laughs> oh siblings i really like to read guys i don't know what to tell you <laughs> no i did i did too and i i don't remember reading any beatrix potter books at all I do remember seeing a play when I was in elementary school. We went to the city and saw it, and that was really big and exciting. But I didn't really, I didn't really know anything about her. Doing research, I think it's really funny because a lot of sources refer to her as uh, like a well-to-do middle-class family, and that is, they're fucking lying. She was wealthy. She was rich. Oh shit! Yeah, she came from a rich family. I think they were just being fairly modest being middle class all right well not many middle class people i know be it in the late 1800s or now happen to employ multiple servants in their multiple houses shut up yeah so she was born in 1866 and she's from like wealthy family on both her mom and her dad's side born in england they both sides of the family prospered from industry. On dad's side, the money came from a, a really big printing company. Uh, while on the mom's side, it was from cotton. And episode five, like we briefly mentioned the Industrial Revolution, like mm-hmm. but specific t- to America. And uh, there's one guy who really started it in the U.S. And he wanted to do it right, as in like not letting his workers live and work in like shit conditions. And Beatrix's paternal grandfather, he he did the same thing you know while he ran a really large printing company um and he did totally employ child labor he wanted good housing you know cheap but good food and like a chance for education to be made available for his workers so while beatrix's dad rupert didn't go into the family business he became a lawyer instead he did carry that same sense of like social obligation into beatrix and like that manifests decades later when she has the chance to use her wealth for the betterment of the community. Yay! Yeah, so she kind of carries it on with the the wealth that the family has coming in, and she's someone who's really focused on how can she redistribute it for others, which is pretty cool. Right. And her mom, like, she was a family friend 
of Rupert's family, Meriden. More money, more wealth, more resources. And she's named after her mom. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So her mom's name is Helen and her full name is is Helen Beatrix Potter. But growing up, they called her Beatrix or Beat to avoid confusion with her mother. Right. Which makes sense. But then at that point, like, why would you even name her after her mother? Not exactly like you can be like, you know, Helen Jr., get down here right now. <laughs> you know, I, I always thought that if I ever were crazy enough, like like something hit me in the head and I suddenly forgot that I never wanted children in my life, if I had a daughter, I would just name her after myself. Why? Can you give us some personal insight into that? Because that would be so confusing. I mean, men get to do it. <laughs> But so yeah, so she's named after her mother, but she's called B or Beatrix. I mean, she's coming of age as a little kid in like the tail end of the Victorian period in England. And they did things a little differently, especially when it came to raising children. It was very much out of sight, out of mind. And her place at the family home in London, the top floor on the, the third floor was nursery. And pretty much until she was a late teenager, like that was her domain. That's just where they kind of like stuck her. The top floor of an entire home. Yeah, that was the nursery. They had servants servicing the house, and mom and dad were out doing their own thing, and she had a nanny, and later on a governess, and they were just like, all right, like, if she was lucky, like, she'd see them maybe once a day. It it was a very different approach to child raising, especially in the wealthy upper classes. I imagine growing up, I'd I'd want to spend time with my family. Like, I was, I'm obviously, like, I was, like, daddy's girl, so, like... To spend time with, like, my dad, to spend time with my mom, like, that was super important to me. And I don't imagine I would have handled not having that. So, I get it. Oh, well, Beatrix, she was a little bit of a daddy's girl. Eh. Solidarity. Yeah, I mean, she, I mean, there's a <laughs> bit where she's like, yeah, I kind of thought my mom was scary. Oh. For a little bit. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I think just because her mom was a little bit more severe. My mom's not scary. No, no, your mom is wonderful and I love her. I love her. So at the age of six, she got a little brother. What? Yay, little yeah. brother. Yeah, surprise. A Walter Bertram. And that kind of disrupted, like, up to that point, the sole attention she had from her nanny. Super typical to the time. She had a strict Scottish Spartan nanny named Miss Mackenzie. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, in the brief description that I came across of her, she definitely sounds like a woman who you just you wouldn't want to fuck with at all. She's she's a woman who's very quick with a ruler and your wrists are gonna fucking hurt. <laughs> That's how it should be, god damn it. Yeah, well I mean that was kind of the whole point during the time is that children were taught to be quiet and obedient. And so for Beatrix and later her brother, I, they were just essentially shut up on the top floor of the townhouse and that was totally normal and every now and again they would see mommy and daddy and they wouldn't even really give kisses because it was taught, you know, not to be affectionate with your children, not to, you know, kind of overindulge them. And it was just for Beatrix, it sounds like it was a fairly isolated way to grow up and if someone who, you know, needed other ways to seek that source of uh compassion and attention that i mean any kid needs and she found that with animals <gasps> yes yeah i know which you know spoiler alert kind of led to that whole becoming a children's author writing about animals who would have guessed so much better than people <laughs> i i know i know we both love our puppies they're great <laughs> now beatrix's mother she had grown up in the country and moving to london with rupert They took full advantage of what the city had to offer. I mean, she really got her fucking game on. And she'd host these elegant dinner parties. And he would schmooze with fellow liberals. He was a a lore. And he became active in, like, the art gallery scene 
in terms of active as in buying the artwork. Nice. Yeah, which as an artist, it's always handy to have those people who are like, yes, I will take two of those. And you're like, great, I just paid my rent for the month. Now, in line with the time and the gender expectations, dad was very active in the public sphere while our mother existed pretty much in the domestic sphere. And that kind of left Beatrix to her own devices, like mom's doing her own thing, dad's doing his own thing. And there she is locked with her little brother, like, I mean, she wasn't locked, but she's, you know, confined to the top floor of their London townhouse. And there came a point when she was a kid, people agree, she's like, yeah, she became really shy. And that just simply might have been a time when she became self-aware and kind of paying attention more to, you know, like the social dynamics going on around her. And as a reserved kid, I'm sure it was hard not to be when the only person you get to interact with daily is your super strict Scottish nanny. And then even when her brother Bertram was old enough, I mean, they were still limited to the nursery and didn't really have a chance to play outside with other kids. And their parents like actively disencouraged them from making friends. What? What good does that do? Uh, well, I mean, she's fairly isolated. Even later on, it's her. I think her parents really had a heavy hand in who she could kind of go and see and do. And I think that it took her a while to be able to get out from under that. Now, typical with other artists that we've covered, she expressed an early interest in art, as as did her brother. And the family was pretty sweet because they they did encourage her art and you know got her a private tutor, and she did really well with it. And that was definitely encouraged and fostered. They're surviving drawings and paintings from her childhood, and like they're very standard for like you know the age in which she did them. But early on, they demonstrate her fascination with the natural world, and that's something her and her brother really shared. Albeit they did have an unsentimental love for their animals. Mm. Yeah, bum bum bum. bum, bum, bum. It's not bad. They just, she's a very practical, pragmatic woman. Now, despite the age difference between Bertram and Beatrix, they were really good friends growing up. But again, it helps to be when you're like the only other human you're interacting with, aside from Miss Mackenzie. But there did come a point when her brother was 11 that he was sent off to boarding school. And on a super side note, I just want to say it was nice to actually be able to follow her brother's life along her own because we've had quite a few people we've done between artists and scientists where we're like, oh, hey, by the way, they had a sibling. <laughs> they may or may not have been named fill in the blank. <laughs> now, on to the rocket scientist. And you're like, wait, 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 can we go back to the brother? Because, I mean, he obviously had to contribute something in his life. So we, I, it was great. I, you know, did get to read about her brother and see what he was up to. Kind of reminded me a little bit of you. Oh, okay. I think he was a younger one. And I mean, he had the means and the chance of education to get out and took it and was like, Psh, oh my God, my parents are so super strict. I was able to kind of like work. I mean, different from how strict your parents are. Not that your parents are strict. They were more like they had an an active role in my upbringing. It took a while for them to go, okay, she's cool. She can make her own decisions. Yeah, yeah. Like to, I think where I have a feeling Beatrix was kind of always waiting for them to trust her. Right. And I think Bertram realized, like, he just had to go out and do things on his own because if he waited for their approval, it would never happen. That's exactly what I did. That's exactly how I got my approval. And I know that, like, it sounds, like, super, like, callous or whatever, but the minute I put my foot down and I was like, no, and then did my own thing, like, they're like, oh, okay, she's making those decisions and she's not fucking up. Right. Maybe we should step back a little and... I feel like there's a huge difference because when you're the younger one, like you do have more freedom. You, you Yeah, do. I feel like that's typically how it goes. Yeah. And I know that my brother wasn't the same way. He was always wondering like if it was going to make mom and dad mad or like 
you know, he, it was harder for him to go out. But for me, it was like, no, absolutely not. Yeah. And I feel like Beatrix, like, definitely super aware of, maybe hyper aware of what her family and what her parents are expecting of her. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it takes her a while to shake that. Yeah. Now, growing up, uh, she did get to go with the salon art shows with her father. And, you know, doing things like this is suggests that they had, like, a really warm, affectionate relationship where, you know, like we mentioned for the time, it was totally normal for parents to see their kids, like, briefly once a day. And going to these art shows got Beatrix to really, like, flex her art criticism. When she was young, she started keeping a diary that she wrote in a secret code. What? Yeah. I mean, even when she was older, she was like, oh, Jesus Christ, I don't remember what code I use. And even she had a little bit of a hard time. Yeah, she's, like, in her 70s, 80s, and she's like, oh, fuck me. What did I write when I was 12? Same. (laughs) (laughs) But she had this code, and it it took decades for people to crack it, and it wasn't until 1958 they were able to decipher her code. What? Yeah, and I think she had a system where she just, like, swapped over a few letters when she was writing. But in it, I think that was the one place she could be absolutely honest with herself, and she would voice opinions on her art and, like, what her and her dad saw together. She would say the comments she suggested to her dad, and I think she definitely wasn't able to, like, be truly honest with how she felt, and so, like, she, like, fucking laid down the wall in her notebook in her diary (laughs) Um, and so that that really helped get her critically thinking about art and composition and color use and what was going on from you know a fairly young age now like i mentioned wealthy family so every spring and summer you know like you do they would just go on vacation to the country and the seaside Mm, that'd be nice I know, right? Well, just wait. They would do two weeks at the seaside in April and then a much longer holiday for three months. And they took the entire London household, staff and all, out to the country. Yo, that is the best job ever with benefits. I don't know what the benefits were like, but yeah, I mean, three months out of the year, you know, when it's nice out, you get to go to exotic Scotland. Fuck yeah. Yeah. So it was a favorite spot that they would always go to. So from the age of five to 15, Beatrix spent every summer in a historic county in central Scotland, Perthshire. And they would stay in this goddamn like mansion overlooking a river. And while her parents were entertaining guests, her and her brother, just like they did at the grandparents' house, got to roam the property. And it was here that Beatrix really fell in love with nature. Come the end of every summer, returning home to London, it was really hard because then she had to go back to her lessons and have to, you know, back to being confined pretty much in the townhouse. And that was always a bit of a disappointment. But they had friends in in the nursery, like bats and dormice and eventually bunnies. I like bunnies. Actually, no, I don't. I don't really like bunnies. I lied. Most bunnies are just, they're kind of mean most of the time. And if they're not, you just have to worry about them, like, panicking so much that they accidentally break their back when you hold them. There's no mention of that in Beatrice's experience with bunnies. <laughs> um, it does mention the different personalities they do have. <laughs> but thank God. Again, this is my warm and fuzzy feel-good episode, Milana. So no one's legit Sorry. breaking their back, no, animal or nothing's otherwise. Nothing's breaking their back. Sorry, my bad. That's my vet tech coming out where I'm like, mm, yeah. medical issue? No? Okay. All right. Well, medical issues aside, everything was lovely, goddammit. <laughs> well, I mean, lovely until we get to this next bit. No, um So you lied. Well, I mean, 
Okay, so like I kind of mentioned earlier, the animal supplied, like, it really fed their curiosity as well as provided companionship. But, you know, brother and sister, they re- they loved animals, like, they were, they were great, but they were also, like, unsentimental about them. They're, again, very practical, especially Beatrix. So when Betran was sent away to boarding school when he was 11, he writes to Beatrix, and he was like, hey, can you do your best to keep my bats alive? Because those were like his animals. But he's like, but, you know, should they die, make sure to boil their bodies so they that we can we can study the skeletons. <laughs> okay, thanks, bye. Love your brother. <laughs> he's 11. I mean. There's no way in hell when I was 11. I'd be like, hey, my favorite small mammal pet, can you just like boil its flesh off and have its bones ready fully articulated upon my return from Uh, private school oh my god that did not happen that's hilarious (laughs) yeah well she was such a good sister when the bat died she totally did that oh man yeah and they got like they they totally respected and loved their animals right death's a natural thing yeah and so you go from, you know, appreciating the animal while it's alive and its movements and the coloration and the fur and it's, you know, everything about it. And then when it's dead, you're like, all right, cool. What does that skeleton look like? I mean, same. If I'm being yeah, honest. I'm... <laughs> you're, you're talking to somebody who, like, is in animal science. Like, I've definitely held, like, real skeletons and dissected my own things for science, not, like, for fun. Again, but... I'm... This is why you you also you very equally could have done her as a scientist as well. This is for true. your segment. Okay. Now, when an animal passed, that was totally common practice for for them to get treated in such a manner and processed. And that anatomical knowledge it did feed her later work with her children's books and her illustrations. Yeah, I'm sure because you know the anatomy of it. And you can be like, this bone goes here. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as life tends to, things did change, and in 1882, the summer house that they would usually go to wasn't available. Oh, no. They can't stay at their usual Scottish mansion for three months. Now, as a result, the family took their holiday to the English Lake District, and this is like a mountainous area in the northwest of England, too far off from Scotland. And this area becomes really important to Beatrix later on. But first, do you want to hear about her books? Yes. Yeah. All right. Cool. As I mentioned, she she did a, she did a good many of them, of which neither or any of them you and I have read. So after her brother shipped off, her governess is all like, "Deuces, I'm out." She's oh no! Like, Look, I've taught Beatrix everything I possibly know. I just I don't know where to go from here. So um, thank you for the employment. I am leaving. Yeah. And. Beatrix, she's bummed out, but she's like 17. So for the first time, she might actually be able to focus on what she wants, which is her art. Mom, on the other hand, she has different plans. And the day before Bertram leaves, Miss Potter has a Miss Annie Carter start to be a companion and a German teacher for Beatrix. Why? Well, because she's a young lady and she obviously needs to still be educated and chaperoned. Duh. Gross. Well, not gross, because Annie 
is only three years older than Beatrix. She's traveled internationally. And for a fairly sheltered girl like Beatrix, it was kind of fucking cool to have your friend like that. They did become really good friends, but come two years later in 1885, Annie is like, Beatrix, it's been great, but I'm getting married. Oh no. Yeah. She's like, I'm leaving. I'm sorry. I love you. Mm-hmm. I love him more. Yeah. So uh, I think it was a little hard for Beatrix because she's still like really, she's only 19 at this time. Again, fairly sheltered. And after that point, that might have been like her only actual friend, like outside of her brother. Oh no. Yeah. Like growing up and going to these, you know, country houses, they'd get to see cousins every now and again, but they weren't like best friends like at all. Right. So her brother's still away and she's kind of just like floating around on her own doing anything and everything with her parents because that's like her life at this point Uh and he's like hey why don't you post some of the drawings you have of the rabbits to some publishing companies they might be able to use them as like illustrations or um greeting cards and she was like shit why not so she sends some of her drawings away and uh they get rejected a little bit but then one place was like yeah we'll take them and sends her six pounds which if i did inflation right by today's standards, would be over $750. What? And it was a few rabbit drawings that she sent. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, it's 1890. Yeah. She's 24, and technically, she's officially published with her illustrations. That's awesome. Yeah, and I mean, by today's standards, like, that's a good bit of cash to be able to put in your little purse. So not only is she 24 and officially published, but they asked for more. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Do they, do they go, hey, I want a book, or was were they still, like, mulling that over? Well, it was a little, it wasn't quite like that. Um, So they used her illustrations. There was a book that came out that they paired it with. So for a bit, she was kind of on, like, the, the holiday card route, which she, I really got this kind of business savviness, I think, from her dad, and, you know, given what her, both her grandparents did. I mean, they built these business, not quite empires, but, you know, very profitable businesses. She really kind of first focused in on Christmas holiday cards. Oh, okay. I mean, that's pretty lucrative if you do it right. And that's what she started doing. Mm -hmm. Now, she's published. She's got a little bit more confidence. She's got all these kind of stories going on in the back of her head. And she's like, hey, maybe I'll approach a few of these publishers about publishing not only my illustrations, but the stories as well. And everyone's like, yeah, that's great. But no one's really interested in what she has in mind. Now, two summers later... They're up in Scotland, and Beatrix, she's writing a letter that would later kick off her literary career and, you know, a character brand that today it nets $500 million annually. Holy shit. Holy shit, indeed. It's a fuck ton of money that someone's making. Now, like I said, she always wrote to her old governess. Annie moved away, started a family, um, and whenever she could, Beatrix would go and visit her. It would bring gifts when Annie was, you know, expecting her first child, and Mm -hmm. so they definitely kept in touch. Right. Now, come 1862, and she writes to Annie's then five-year-old boy, Noel, quote, My dear Noel, I don't know what to write you, so I shall tell you a story about four little rabbits whose names were Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail, and Peter. <gasps> yeah. That's like the first line, right? That, I, yeah, I mean, you and I, we've never read the book, but we both know that line. Yeah, we do. Somewhere in the depths of our brain, our little childhood is like, (laughs) wait, what? Like, I know that. (laughs) Now, transitioning into the 20th century, out of that Victoria era, there were changing attitudes for children's books and their education. 
And because of that, there's a rise in literature for kids. And Beatrix was really adamant in creating stories, talking to them rather than talking down to them. Right. Like the story of Peter Rabbit. And you know, that so many people know it's such a straightforward story illustrated with watercolor and line work. These really fun, great, beautiful illustrations. From the start, Beatrix, she was very set in how she was going to go about having her work made. Bit of a perfectionist. When she was unable to find a publisher for Peter Rabbit in 1900, she's 34 and she's like, you know what? fuck it. I'll publish it myself. And again, you know, a good reflection of her business sense in terms of who to talk to and her strategy for getting it printed. She only published 200, but she had the foresight to get more of the covers printed than the actual pages of the book because doing the covers were harder and, you know, more labor intensive. Right. So when things did go well and she needed another publishing, she was kind of already ahead with her extra covers for the books. Oh, she's smart. Yeah, well, I mean, she I mean, she really does build this, like, character, you know, empire with putting Peter Rabbit on everything later on. So, I mean, think of how we think of Disney and Mickey Mouse. He's on fucking everything, right? Yeah, he's everywhere. She, she started that with Peter Rabbit. Oh, my God. Yeah, and the wealth she made off of it, you know, later on, she was able to redistribute to the community, which is pretty right. awesome. Oh, cool. Yeah, she was super savvy. So eventually she was able to get it published. Um, and at times the publishers would come to her and be like, hey, we do want to compromise on a few things. And being a perfectionist, she was like, no, like, I'm not looking to enlarge my books. I'm not looking to add more color. She she typically stuck to her guns with what she had in mind for the final product. And I think it was really smart because she wanted her books to be small. She called them her little books. Aww. And in total, she did about 20 of them. And she wanted them small so they could fit into the hands of kids. Oh, yeah. Like it was, these are really well thought out items. That they were made for children to be theirs. Right. Not some huge book that to an adult would be, you know, moderate size, that to a kid would be huge. These were meant to, you know, be proportional to her audience. And she was, she was always very mindful of who she was writing for. And she also wanted them to be cheap. So that way most families could afford them. When you're adding more illustrations and when you're adding more color, it's a more intricate printing process. Right. And it, it costs more money. And she was like, look, like, that's going to be butt fuck expensive. Like just because my family could afford them doesn't mean everyone else can. Right. Oh, my God. She's perfect. Yeah. She's like, we're not going to do that. I, she, as the, the older she gets, there's so much more personality that comes across in her. And a lot of the time, the publishers are like, you need to do that. You need to do that. And she's like, like, fuck you guys. Like, you're trying to, like, cater to the public. And there's one quote that she wrote about. And she's like, I don't care a tub penny button. Oh, what? About, <laughs> about her publishers. Yeah. A, a tub penny button. That's great. That's fucking amazing. Yeah. Some sassy late Victorian insult shit talk going on. Um, <laughs> Throw that shade. That's right. So a publisher picks up Peter Rabbit, their first official printing with the new publisher. All 8,000 copies are sold before they're officially published. Oh, my God. Yeah. And while all this is going on, like, keep in mind, she's got really controlling parents. And she's she's also in her 30s. And they're like, mm no well and she's like like dude chill like i got this hmm. her brother was just kind of out doing his thing and was like you know i'll just get done what i need and she's she's still very much kind of catering with parents but at the same time like she's dependent on them and at this point in her 30s she's a spinster you know what that's okay <laughs> it is because it got us these amazing books and illustrations but kind of a weird thought that she's a woman in her 30s and like by victorian standards like that's weird. Like, why aren't you married? 
And so with the success of Peter Rabbit, you know, her publishers are quick to want more. And so she supplies and she, you know, pretty much yearly, she's creating stories and they're always published just in time for Christmas because hmm. she's, again, very aware of the marketing. And that was something that she did, like when she started self-publishing, she wanted to hit that Christmas time, you know, buying rush. Right. And the characters she's writing about, she's typically pulling from things she's written years before to Annie's children, to her old governess's children. Now, with Peter Rabbit, Beatrix covered English copyright, but she kind of messed up. And with her first book, and you know what happens, she didn't get it copyrighted in the United States. No. Yeah. So in England, everything's going great. People want more books. And it's the same thing in America. You know, all these kids and these families are buying up her books and they're like, this is great. There's Americans that are like, you know what? This is even greater because I can print this myself and they can't come after me. Those bastards. Because she didn't get the copyright. Yeah. And so her work's blown up in England and in the United States. Only in the United States, she has no creative control over it. And people are like taking her Peter Rabbit character and just putting him into their own creative story. I kind of meshing things up a little bit. No. Damn it. Yeah. Well, she fucking learned her lesson. I was like, never again. Mm-hmm. So going back to her art, it was very observational and it's not uncommon to be able to look at her work and to be able to point out a specific place that she lived or she visited that she pulled inspiration from for her work and often yeah she would just kind of combine all the animal sketches that she had done and then incorporate them into these scenes that she had done of like backdrops of like let's say the inside of like farmhouses or the outside property um, a very naturalistic feel to it. Earthy colors used, a little splash of like red and blue too. She kept in mind the printing process and how it would look in the book. That fed back into her art style and how she used line and how she used color. Right. But I mean, I think it makes her a very timeless look that she was going for and, you know, very watercolory. Mm-hmm. Lots of, you know, soft kind of pastels. And one thing she said, she's like, I hate drawing people. Well, that's one thing that you typically don't find in her work at all. She stuck with fuzzy, furry creatures like rabbits and pigs. And later on, she becomes a farmer. And it's really funny as a Christmas gift. Um, and this is after she's published a book about a little pig. She gives people sausage as a gift from her own <laughs> pigs. Oh, no. That she used as reference for the book. Oh, my God. <laughs> Again, very practical woman. Very, very pragmatic. Oh, man. Now, while her books are getting in full swing, there's a marriage proposal. What? From who? Yeah. yeah, the guy she'd kind of been going back and forth with at the publishing firm, you know, kind of fell for her. Parents did not approve at all because to them, they're like, no, he's a lower class than us. Like, this is not going to work. And then finally, the brother was like, yo, surprise, I'm married. And her family was like, wait, what? And her brother was like, yeah, I got married like seven years ago to a Scottish woman. Holy shit. Yeah, he's like, all those business trips I'm on, no, I'm I'm with my wife in Scotland. Oh, my God. Yeah, and her parents were like, oh, well, we guess you can get married, but you can't tell anyone. What? Yeah, again, because he's from a different class, they didn't approve. Right. And they're like, we'll just keep the proposal secret, okay, and we'll just see what happens. Well, I guess I kind of broke my rule about warm and fuzzy stuff, um, because he dies. God damn it, Megan. I know, I'm sorry, but... But the moral of that story is to always take your B12 supplement because he became deficient in B12 and died. Because that's the type of shit that happens in, like, 1905. So, like, within a month of them being, like, engaged, he's dead. 
Yeah, and she's 39, and she was kind of like, oh, fucking shit. God damn it. Now, with all the money coming in, she was able to start buying property. Uh-huh. And she decides to buy up farmland in the area her family visit at, visited as a kid, the, the Lake District. Uh-huh. That's the area kind of in northwestern England. And I think it was a chance for her to kind of do her own thing and to also kind of deal with the death of her fiancé. And so she buys up this farm, Hilltop Farm. And after the fact, she learns that it was sold to her for twice the actual price. Those bastards. She was a little pissed. And so after that, made sure to always have a local solicitor work with her when she was buying up property. Because she was like, fuck it, never again. So, I mean, surprise. All these people kind of taken advantage of a woman. Gee, that never happened. (laughs) (laughs) And while she's here and also kind of starting up, like, the farm, she also gets into sheep breeding. What? I know, right? Like, in her Why? early 40s, I was like, you know what I'm going to do? Yeah, so there's this breed of sheep in England, the Herdwick sheep, a very hardy local breed that they think was brought over initially by the, the Normans. It was declining, and she just really fell for him and was like, shit, let's, I've got the land, let's breed some sheep. <laughs> okay, she was so good at it. She won awards, and she became the first and only woman president of the Herdwick Sheep Breeders Association. Jesus fucking Christ. There's nothing this woman cannot do. Yeah. So she's buying up land. She's got money coming in from her book. She's, you know, like I said, every year she's doing more and more children's books. Everyone loves them. And the local solicitor who was helping her out with all these property purchases in 1912 was like, hey, you want to get married? Another one. Another one. And guess what? This time, he doesn't die after a month. Yes. They get married and live happily ever after. Aww. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's World War I, but I mean, after that, they do good. You know. And then there's the specter of World War II. But I mean, after that. (laughs) I mean, for the most part, it's warm and fuzzy. Um, Yeah. So he's a lawyer. They get married. I mean, they start buying up more land. They just own an entire town at this point. Well, not quite. They're buying a land outside of the town. <laughs> 1914, her father dies, war is declared, and her eyesight's starting to fail. So she's not doing as many illustrations as she was back in those late 1890s when she was still a youth. And fast forward to 1970, and that publisher she's been working with the entire time is guilty of embezzlement. Of course. Yeah. I get this shit. So they reach out to her and we're like, well, we might have fucked up and the company might totally be about to hit bankruptcy, but it's a family run company. They're like, hey, remember that one time you were secretly engaged to her brother? Can you help us out? I mean, you're like almost family. Oh, Jesus. And she fucking does. No, why? No. Yeah. She's like, here, let me put together a book. And there's a few new things, but she kind of pulls from older stuff. And it was like, here, here's some merchandise. Go make some money off of it. And they do. Oh, and the company's fine afterwards. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, she could have let him sink. But, I mean, she single-handedly saved that publishing company. Oh, my God. From bankruptcy. Which, I mean, I don't know if I would have been as generous. No, I would them. not have. I would have been like, um, yeah. you need to sink because you fucking embezzled shit so please go fuck yourself yeah and you didn't pay me my royalties i mean again it's wartime but like still come on woman's trying to make money now also during this period her brother dies so i guess it's not all warm and fuzzy 
this episode. I'm sorry. It's alcoholism. He was a drinker. He was a drinker all his life. Yeah. So so he's 46, but it also marks the end of World War One. Woot! Yeah. So there's that. Woo! Um, and it's kind of sweet because after this, um, you know, her father's he's passed. She gets her mother finally to come out from London and live with her because she's she just keeps buying up more land. And she hears from the local town people. They're like, "Yeah, we really don't have a doctor or anything. This kind of sucks." And so she's like well, I own this property and why don't we just have a nurse come live out here? And she totally makes it happen. <laughs> why not? Yeah, like, again, like, way to use her wealth for, for the good of the community. I mean, it's a small thing, but it's something. Like, suddenly they won't have to travel, you know, like a few towns over to see the doctor. Right. Uh, you actually have a nurse in town to help out. And again, it's like, it's fucking 1919. Now, later on, she gets hit up by a Annie Carol Moore the American superintendent of children's work in New York City for for the New York City Library. And that kind of opened up a new chapter in her publishing. So she's not only working with these now not bankrupt publishing company, but also like legit having her work represented in America. And she really loved that. And she had a few works kind of published in the US that she didn't publish uh, in the UK. In part because she felt they were really intimate. You know, not only could you look at her illustrations and her drawings and see local places and the insides of buildings, but a lot of the time you could kind of guess, like, what characters were who around town. Right. And so she felt like, ah, let's kind of get it out a little bit. And, you know, like I said, kind of opened up like her her opportunity to you know to to reach new audiences she always had like kids writing from her from america new zealand and a few times she dedicated her books to some of the kids that would write to her she always always made sure to yeah to have that feedback with her fans and it's so funny um so in 1936 this middle-aged man a clergyman from kent visits her and it's the little boy who when he was five years old she wrote to him (gasps) oh no it was Neil. yeah like years later and there he is and he's all grown up now at this point she's in her 70s she has a few health scares and eventually in 1943 she dies in her sleep her ashes are scattered on her property her quite expansive property because mm-hmm. a, a year and a half later her husband passes as well and together they leave over four thousand acres 17 farms eight cottages to the National Trust, which is, you know, similar to our state park system, preserving land and areas of natural beauty and, you know, and and scenic heritage. And with her donation after her death, that's what really established one of, like, the largest national trusts in the UK. That's unreal. Yeah. So that's, that's Beatrix Potter. There's a lot of ways could have approached her. So we've got her artwork, her illustration, her naturalist work. I didn't, I briefly touched on all her conservation work with the land donated. There's so much more on her Herdwick breeding of the sheep and her farming techniques. She was a really interesting woman and things seemed a little bit slow in the beginning because she, I think, was in such a sheltered situation with her parents. But come middle age, I mean, things really started moving forward and she really started doing things on her terms, which um, it was really fun kind of doing research about her. And yeah, so that's, that's Beatrix Potter. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. (coughs) Oh, hi. (laughs) I'm (laughs) saying... Oh my god, seriously. <laughs> We're like, it's been like four months. We are eight episodes in. <laughs> and this is how you treat our our very few listeners. <laughs> Hi, my name is Milana. Let me burp in your ear holes. 
Unsurprisingly, that moment was brought to you by beer. Uh, and for those of you curious, we are not recording on a Sunday morning as we typically do. <laughs> it's uh, it's a late weeknight, so it's, it's a Tuesday little bit more acceptable night. for her to be chugging a, isn't it 11 uh, point beer? No, it's 8.2. I left the, there's 8. a 15 2. Okay. point in the fridge. Thanks, Whitney. I'm going to drink that. Uh, but we would not get to the end of tonight's recording had she started that 15%. So oh. here we are, compromise. Oh, no. I made sure to make it a little bit lower. So 8.2. That's my norm. It's fine. Um, My lady is also an illustrator. And it, so is she doing mushrooms too? No, 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 no. Different thing. But she definitely was an artist. This is where things get a little blurry, a little fuzzy. So I'm doing Maria Sibylla Marion, and she was originally trained as, a, like, an artist, and I'll, I'll get there in a second. Okay. She was born April 2nd, 1647, in the Free Imperial City of Frankfurt in Germany. She, later on, like, what she's known for is her work as a naturalist, a scientific illustrator, and an entomologist. You know what an entomologist is, right? Uh, yeah, with bugs. Bugs. Yay! Yep. So she was actually born as the ninth child of her biological father, Matthias Marion. There's like an, there's like a, it's a whole title of Matthias Marion the Elder. Something shit like weird Ooh, like that. Yeah. That sounds like something from D&D. Right? <laughs> he was a Swiss engraver and publisher, and then he like met her mom, Johanna Sil- Sibylla Hain, and the two were married for like four years before Matthias died. So the next year, her mom remarried to a Jacob Merrill, who was a still life painter. So Jacob actually pushed for Maria to learn how to draw and paint because that's what young women did if they wanted to like get money. They're most likely like still life paints, embroiders, things like that. So mm-hmm. she studied under him and she also studied under a bunch of his understudies. So like it wasn't uncommon for a lot of these still lives uh, as a woman to like have like flowers painted in them. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it was even pretty chill to paint butterflies and whatnot to add flair to your pieces. Uh, what was unusual about like young Maria was that she was learning how to paint, but she was also capturing and raising her creepy crawly subjects. Was she also trapped at the top floor of a townhouse? No, no, I don't think so. She had a pretty, like... Good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was fascinated by, like, silkworms and butterflies. She had a ton of books of natural history. So she would actually go about her childhood and, like, find caterpillar larvae, like, all over the town. And then she would raise them, and she would record the plants they fed on and the behavior she seemed to notice. So at the age of, like, 13, she was being a still-life painter, but she was also like, oh, this is pretty. This is Fred. (laughs) 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 This is Jimmy. He's a larva, but he's got a few more weeks left. I just got to give him a plant, right? So... As she got older, this was a side thing, though. So to make money, she actually thought of herself as a botanical artist only. So even if she liked the bug, she did a lot of work that copied her mother artists and were, like, super decorative. And she would just do, like, a single flower and sell them. Embroiders would take her pieces and use them as a backdrop for her own patterns. And almost none of the work she did that actually was sold was known for based off of her scientific observation. She just kind of, like, did it for pretty things. 1665, she marries a Johann Andreas Graf. Uh, So that's her dad's apprentice. In 1668, they had their first child, Johanna Helena. In 1670, they moved to Johann's, or Johann's hometown, Nuremberg. And then she did her embroidery work, but would also teach unmarried daughters of wealthy families how to draw. So doing that increased actually the family's social standing, and it allowed them to get more money and a lot more access to, like, gardens. 
and like fancier places because they oh okay she's going to their home she's teaching their young unmarried daughters um and then they're like going out in the gardens and like that's where they would go paint she had more access to gardens therefore more bugs yeah yeah i know that's a really crafty move yeah so and she also um starts to do copper plate engravings she's admitted to the i don't even have to say this jochim von sandrart's German Academy in 1675. That's apparently an art academy. Mm -hmm. She immediately publishes a flower pattern book. And then in 1678, she has a second child, a daughter named Dorothea Maria. But in 1679, she gets a little wild, right? So she publishes a book, but instead of it being just a simple illustration book where she's doing like embroidery things or whatever, she actually Mm -hmm. publishes the first of a two-volume illustrated book focusing on insect metamorphosis. Can you still get that, like, today? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's still, like, there's, like, a whole website dedicated to her illustrations. There's a whole book about it. Okay, awesome. And people actually still collect, like, originals. But this is super important, and we'll touch on that, like, later. But it's good that she's doing this thing. And then in 1683, she publishes the second volume. So she's pumping shit out, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So... Maria was super unhappy in her marriage, and once her stepfather died, she moved in with her daughters to live with her mom in Friesland. So that's in the Netherlands. I didn't know that. I had to look that up. They hung out for, like, three years. In that time, Maria was able to study more natural history and also teach herself Latin because, we touched on this earlier, Latin is the book that science is written in. That's, like, the language that science is written in. Mm-hmm. So most science books most journals or the names of um specific species they're all latin based so she wanted to teach herself that she also used that time to study frogs so collection dissection illustration all that good stuff i believe that this is the time that she actually lived in a kind of like a castle it was kind of like i don't know if you've ever heard of the labidists it's like a weird off sect of christianity no, no, subsects of Christian religion does not happen to be a strong point of mine. Yeah. At all. From what I understand, there was one, it's called the Walta Castle. It was in Friesland. And this guy who made the Labadist community, he was like, I don't like this Christian community. I don't like this Christian community. So he was trying to find his own niche and he couldn't find one. So he made his own. And then people followed him. Oh, shit. All right. Yeah. She was also religious. She was at the castle, and that's where she was studying these frogs. Mm-hmm. Mosing on in with the religious people. 1690, her mom dies. 1691, Maria and her daughters move to Amsterdam. At this point, her husband just divorces her. It's whatever. Okay. He could take a hint. Yeah. Honestly, they're just doing more illustration in Amsterdam. And then her daughter, Joanna, meets a merchant and marries him. And he's actually, um, he was a merchant who went to Suriname a lot. So Maria and Joanna make money via copper plating and still life art. You know what copper plating is, obviously, but others don't. Yes. So copper plating, yeah. uh, they're basically artists are sketching little designs in like hard metals and surfaces and then selling them. So they're, they're smaller pieces and they were pretty high up there as far as like embroidery because it was like, that Victorian, delicate, decorative era where you wanted those little things in your life. That's how they made their money. And then, I don't know who had this idea, but they were like, we're going to go to Suriname and we're going to just observe the creatures there and the plants there and go. Oh, shit. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So they were actually okayed 
by the Dutch West India Company to go do this thing. Now, the Dutch West Indian Company is not a scientific company at all. It's... No, no, they're in it for the money. Yeah, they're merchant based. They were the ones that wanted the spices. They wanted the silk. They wanted all the good stuff, right? So mm-hmm. they got the funding mostly by selling 255 of her own paintings and also funded by the Dutch West Indian Company because they were hoping that she would come back with something cool. So she's 52. <laughs> In 1699, uh, she and her daughter go on, and it was supposed to be a five-year mission. Their goal was to illustrate and document as many new species of insects as they could. They left July 10th and landed in Suriname in August. So, like, around, I think, August 15th or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was funny because she, she was funded by the Dutch West Indian Company, but she didn't like a lot of the merchants because they looked down on her. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, she was a woman, one. And then this is this is a quote. The people there have no desire to investigate anything like that. So what she did. Uh, indeed, they mocked me for seeking anything other than sugar in the country. So they thought, like, what are you doing? Why aren't you just getting, like, sugar? Like, that's more lucrative. And she was like, no, fuck you, I'm going to do this. And she was, fun mm-hmm. fact, the first woman funded to go do this kind of mission in South America from, like, a European standpoint. Problem was, she was only there for two years. She got malaria. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. So she and her daughter came back to the Netherlands early. And they went to the Netherlands. Um, She recovered, and she opened a shop that sold specimens and and illustrations of what she found. She published in 1705 Metamorphosis Insectorum Surinamensium about the insects that she found there. Ten years later, she has a stroke, and she's partially paralyzed, so suddenly she can't really work as much, and people think of her as kind of like a—I think when she did die, they put on her, like, registry as, like, pauper. So she did all these amazing things, Uh, but that's what—that was what was on her death list, which was really annoying to read. Two years later, she dies, but she did some really cool stuff with science. We're going to hit on that real quick. Why is her work so important, Megan? Do you know? I mean, I haven't seen it myself, so I don't know the level of detail she was able to do. But I imagine going abroad and exposing Westerners to just new species. That must have been pretty big. Oh, absolutely. That was a huge part of it. So first leg of this is, in general, whether she was in Suriname or not, insects at the time were considered creatures of the devil. Really? Mm-hmm. They just assume that caterpillars, moths, whatever, that they all came from something called spontaneous generation. Do you know what that is as far as scientific terms um implausible but they just assume like what is this creature of the night (laughs) it just like pops out of nowhere yeah so essentially they just thought that living beings came randomly out of things that weren't alive so flies were supposed to have generated from rotting meat aristotle thought that scallops generated spontaneously from sand that they just popped out okay Eggs were so small. How are they supposed to know that eggs were there? You know what I mean? So scientists at the time believed that living matter could randomly and with seemingly no purpose be generated with non-living matter as its source. With zero connection. Just, oh, maggots generated on the cutting board again. So there wasn't much knowledge of, like, eggs, proper insect environments for their young to hatch and grow. People just thought the devil sent them to Earth randomly because why not? (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Oh, such simpler times. I know. It's like when they thought the world was flat. So it's obviously a debunked myth now. Um, So the major debunking of it was done by a scientist named Francesco Reddy. 
and Louis Pasteur. So 1668, Reddy challenged the idea that maggots arose spontaneously from rotting meat. In the first like experience that he tried to do, he actually placed meat in like these sealed containers. Because if you let it out, obviously flies are going to start to show up. That's just what happens. But he put them in sealed containers and he watched them. Obviously, sealed containers were deprived of air. There was nothing going on. So he was like, what is happening? But he also put like cloth on other containers where like some air could get in kind of like a filter that if a fly decided to show up and like drop an egg down there it could probably happen so there were like Mm -hmm. variants of how sealed off the meat was and obviously the sealed one didn't generate anything so like well maybe there's something going on with the air maybe there's a reason for it in 1859 pasteur actually it's like this famous swan neck experiment he like made these flasks that had swanish necks that were like curved so that air couldn't get into it and gravity couldn't let particles get into the main part of the the flask so that they would get caught in the like in the neck but they wouldn't get into the beef broth that he had or the meat broth that he had in the flask when you say that should we think of like the u-bend like under a sink Yeah, yeah yeah i think that's probably a perfect way to say it yeah okay so i mean he also like boiled these flasks he wanted to see Mm -hmm. what happens when he did that he watched and nothing happened nothing grew no bacteria nothing like that and then he like flipped the tat the flask so that the meat broth could get into the like the u-bend where all the particles would have fallen from the air and it started to like grow stuff in it so he was starting to realize that not only do things not spontaneously come out of nowhere there are particles in the air bacteria things like that that make growth happen you know it's really interesting you mentioned this um there's this really great book i don't recall the author's name but it's titled the butchering art and it's all about the transition from surgery being really crude to being like the modern um you know precise oh yeah form of medicine we know today yeah, yeah, yeah. and it opens up and it covers a little bit about miasma and you know, bad air and how the the bad air is what makes you sick. And I'm sure it's stemming exactly from these studies that this is how it was interpreted of like, well, there's something in the air that's going to, you know, make things grow like that. I mean, that's, that's the truth because if you seal things off, nothing's going to happen, but particles are literally everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Pasteurization, that comes from his name. So when they boil the milk mm-hmm. to make sure that it's sterile enough to drink, that's where it's coming from. Um, but his was done in 1859, and Reddy's was done in 1668. Hers was in 1679, so it was a few years before Reddy's experiment. Okay. And what that led to was, essentially, she illustrated in-depth eggs, different larvas in different stages, the actual insect itself, what plants were being used. Like It was so extensive that you can see exactly what the cocoon looked like exactly what the web looked like depending on what she was putting down so she put down all of the information you needed to know the the entire life cycle of a certain species so she studied them extensively over time Mm -hmm. and what that told people was that there were small eggs in specific spots so you know how people thought flies just came out of meat no flies preferred that spot so caterpillars preferred this one plant so they would go to that one plant, they would drop their eggs, and then those eggs would eventually grow. So she was mm-hmm. just kind of working towards documenting the lengthy process of, like, a bug growing. So naturalists around that time would absolutely draw their subjects. But the thing that set her apart from the others was that she was classically trained as an artist. 
And she's one of the mm-hmm. first ones to observe them directly. So Maria would get into what the eggs looked like, where they were laid, what a young maggot would look like, what an older one did, what the cocoon looked like, etc. And she would keep the colors as close to real life version as humanly possible. So she wouldn't make colors up. She'd be like, this is a darker red or this is a very dark brown. Like it has to be this particular color. Like she would work hard to get it so that when somebody came mm-hmm. across that animal, they knew exactly what they were looking at because they had seen it in her, in her illustrations. Yeah. She also dove deep into specific plants that larvae would feed on. So they all had preferences and the speed and size of larvae growing depended on the amount of plant or the amount of nutrition given to the larvae by that plant. So if they didn't get enough nutrition from one plant, it would take them longer to grow. So she would be like, okay, well, if in that case it would take this much time and if if it was like a shorter, like if he got more nutrition from this plant, then it would take her a shorter time. Like she would give you lengths of time. So fast forward a couple of years, ecology would finally realize how important the plant host association was. So a lot of bugs were actually named after the plant they would eat. It was like a big key point. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So knowing these pairs were crucial in understanding how everything fit into that particular region, biome, etc. And Maria had published extensive drawings that showed the matching preferred plant. So that extra step she took was not a common one for other naturalists. No, I, I get it. Like, I know Beatrix, she was kind of unique in when she would illustrate her mushrooms. She would show them in their natural setting. Yeah, and most people didn't. They were just... Yeah, like, it wasn't just an isolated, like, you know, insect or mushroom. It's it's the whole picture that it seems like, you know, both these women were definitely going after. Yeah, and, like, what's crazy is, like, I've seen some of her... I mean, obviously, I've seen some of her work. Um, but, like, some of her illustrations weren't just, like, bugs. They were, like... The predators of those bugs. I mean, I'll, I'll get to it in a second, but like there are a few of spiders eating something. Like the bird eating spider was eating a bird, you know, had one down, like it had kind of it and its natural environment doing its natural thing instead of just standing there like looking at you. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's more of a clinical object. Yeah, it was very much a scene. So in Suriname specifically, she obviously showcased that part of the world. A lot of people had no idea what was over there. So she discovered a whole range of previously known animals and plants in the interior of the Suriname. She spent time studying classifying her findings, described them in detail. She obviously noted their habitat, habits, all that good stuff. I have a quote from her. No, no, no. Yeah, that's fine. Take your time. The quote says, I created the first classification for all the insects which had chrysalises, the daytime butterflies and the nighttime moths. The second classification is that of the maggots, worms, flies, and bees. I retained the indigenous names of the plants because they were still in use in America by both the locals and the Indians. So she kept that in mind, like, this isn't just for me, this is for everybody. She looked at plants, mm-hmm. frogs, snakes, spiders, iguanas, tropical beetles, obviously the bird spider we talked about, army ants and leafcutter ants. So their effects on the organism. So you, we think of our ants, they're kind of whatever. They do they do their own thing. They're pretty benign. These fuckers, they ate everything. They destroyed their environment. Were super carnivorous. So, like, she would look at what they were doing, what they were eating. And obviously, she was careful because she didn't want to get bit by one. But those things can wreck an, a biome if you let it. Like, <laughs> it's pretty intense. Or an ecosystem. Sorry, biome's a little too big for that. Mm-hmm. So, she also showcased the pineapple. Which people knew about the pineapple, but she she had one where it was like kind of like a budding pineapple on the tree, and then like cockroaches were eating it. It was just so like I'll have to put that one up. It was very like this is what eats it. This is what it looks like as it's budding in a particular space, and like people saw that and they wanted to eat it, and like it actually was a thing that merchants would look for. They were like that looks useful. Let's 
Let's bring that over. Oh, it was such a wealth status thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, to to be able to showcase pineapple in your house. Yeah, yeah. So that was the big one for her. So again, these illustrations were mad accurate. Entomologists would analyze her journals, and they could identify over seventy percent of the uh, lepid. Lepidopterans, so they're like butterfly moth-like creatures. Mm-hmm. So 70% of that. And we're talking so accurate that uh, Carl Linnaeus, Carl Linnaeus, he's like the father of taxonomy. So we talked about taxonomy in episode one. Yes, yeah, with your breakdown of the different like prehistoric. like. Yeah, so essentially just how things are named, how they're classified in in the world, their species, their family, their order, that sort of thing. He actually could identify and name 100 or so species thanks to Maria's illustrations. Oh, nice. And some of those, he used her name in them. Even cooler. No. So, por ejemplo, for example, the bird-eating spider is Avicularia marianae. So the last one is M-E-R-I-A-N-A-E. So like Marion, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I don't want to. Oh, I saw I saw pictures of the bird eating <laughs> spider yesterday. You never told me they were so fluffy. Okay, when I was in, I think the third grade, I did a report about the bird eating spiders. Oh. And as a little like eight nine year old, I definitely did not include the lad name. But yeah, those guys are they're so big. Oh my god, they're as big as a dinner plate. I do remember that from my report. So gross. So fucking gross. They're so amazing. They are. Yeah. I'm sure they are very wonderful and adept creatures. I want nothing to do with them. That's fine. That's fair. Yeah. They can live their life just far, 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 far away from me. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um. So I'm almost done. This was a quick one, but I had like a whole like thing that I wanted to do. Like I had a. Yeah, no, no, go, go for it. I mean, we're here, so you might as well. Might as well. Actually... Many species were named after her. So some of the names that he did, they encompassed five levels of kingdoms with her name in it, class, order, genus, and species, and it included like five different butterfly moth-like species, an entire genus of mantises, so like praying mantises, two spiders, lizard, toads, snails, birds, an entire genus of flowering plants, all with her name somewhere in there. And she's got three names. How? So. Yeah. <laughs> How how was her work received while she was still alive? I mean, she made most of her money off of the illustrations. Okay. I mean, which is, is quite a feat, especially in the late, you know, 7th or 18th century. Like her shop when she came back, it sold a bunch of different like things that you couldn't find anywhere else because they were from Suriname. So I'm sure she had like a lot of mm-hmm. people come in like, oh, this is curious. I mean, like they were, it was still recognized, obviously, because I mean, she was, there were a bunch of species named after her and Linnaeus was mm-hmm. like alive not long after she was. So there's that. I mean, she obviously had recognition in the scientific community so a lot of it came from her illustrations and her copper prints like her embroidery and her copper prints Mm -hmm. again you can still buy her books online it's like there's a whole website dedicated to her like her illustrations and then recently um her portrait found its way on the 500 dm note before germany like switched to euros so she was on their money. There were like a billion schools named after her. There was a research vessel oh, with her name sweet. on it. It was like a boat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Lloyd Library Museum hosted an exhibit called Off the Page, and it was like 3D versions of her illustrations. It's very mm-hmm. cool. And actually, Google did a little like a doodle for the day on the, the search page in 2017. Nice. Like, they're not boring. Like, they're great to look at. There's a reason the book is still being published and sold today, because they're so well done. 
I know I'll be posting all of that. Usually I'm so afraid to post like show notes with illustrations because a lot of my scientists don't have a lot of visuals, but she's got a bunch. So I'm looking forward to making those and putting them out there. Yeah, that'll be really fun to see, to see her work. Yeah. And I'll have to include a few of them. Uh, Beatrix's more scientific breakdown because she did study some insects and spiders and stuff here and there that they, the illustrations have survived. Right. So it, it would be interesting to see how the two women approached a similar subject matter and, and how their, their attention for detail really focused in. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. And I mean, obviously, like, you know how you and I are totally okay with, like, especially in your work, like, science and art should always marry each other. They should always be around each other and appreciate each other. And it's nice to be able to kind of, like, see that, like, in this particular episode. So. Yeah, yeah. I really see how they complement and support one another. So. It's almost like that's part of why we're doing this. Dun, dun. (laughs) Uh, So that's my quick little thing. On Maria Sibylla Marion and her fucking bird-eating spider. <laughs> so gross. <laughs> All right. Well, sweet. I'm really excited to see images of her work. That'll be really fun. Because like you mentioned, like some of the stuff your scientists, they do, it's more like theoretical mm-hmm. or like, you know, super hardcore, like, you know, math. And I'm like, that's great. But can I just look at a pretty picture every now and no. again? <laughs> With her, you'll get a lot of them, but absolutely. At this point, I think there there's like no really copyright on them. I mean, I'm sure there's a book there, but they're they've been around for so long and they've been all over the internet that if like general use and not like public use will be okay, so we should be fine. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. So I'm good. You good? Yeah. So again, thank you guys. We always appreciate it so much. Um. No matter where you guys are from, from fucking Alabama to Australia. <laughs> And everywhere in between. Uh, It means so much that you guys join us for, you know, about an hour or so here and there. So as always, Milana, if people are interested in seeing the show notes where they can see fuzzy little Peter Rabbit and your lovely bird-eating spider, where can they go to check things out? I mean, oh, actually, that does make this a really nice and warm and fuzzy episode. Yeah, it does, because they're both furry. Two different types of furry, oh. but they're the fun type of furry and not the creepy type of furry furries. Oh, so gross. I'm sorry if anyone in our audience is a furry. Oh. <laughs> I'm so sorry for your loss. I mean... No, I mean, whatever you're into, that's whatever. up to you. We don't kink But yeah, here. so we, got, we did get warm and fuzzy this episode. <laughs> so where can people go to learn more about our type of warm and fuzzy? <laughs> so... <laughs> So you can find our show notes at myfavoritefeminist.com. We have Facebook and Instagram under My Favorite Feminist. We are on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Go ahead. Feel free to like, subscribe, all of that good stuff. And if you guys are listening on iTunes, please go ahead in that comment section. Let us know. If you could watch any movie while on Mushrooms, which one would it be? You excited? Which one would it be, Megan? Oh, man, definitely not 2001 A Space Odyssey, especially the ending. I would refuse to watch Willy Wonka, the original. Oh, oh, my God. That would be way worse. (laughs) That tunnel scene is just no. (laughs) No. All right. We'll see you next time, guys. Have a good one. Thank you. Come on, 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 come